Now, we live in a culture where everybody's offended by everything nowadays. And I'm going to take a chance this morning on, on offending the women in the choir. I don't mean to. I'm sorry. But didn't the men sound good this morning? I'm telling you what, you guys rocked this morning. Y'all were, y'all were good. Y'all were very, very good. Not that you're normally not good. You're good. You're very good. All right, one great thing happened this week, and one unusual thing happened in the last couple of weeks that uh, I just want to call to your attention. One of them doesn't amount to a hill of beans except to me and one other person in the sanctuary. The winter solstice, solstice happened a couple of weeks ago. For me, that's a wonderful time of the year because that's the shortest daylight day of the year. And what that means is that from that moment forward, every day gets a little bit longer and there's a little bit more sunlight and it's pretty soon going to be spring and then it's going to be summer and and I'm happy. I'm happy. We've gone through that dark time in the world, you know, it's like it's going to come to an end. But right before it comes to an end, the earth tilts back up again and the sun and it's a good thing. So... Y'all know that, and it's very good, and there's going to be sunshine and warmth, and and it's going to be a good place. Second thing that happened is today, now this this is only good for trivia, so if you don't go to these trivia contests, this is a useless fact, but it's something that caused me to waste about half an hour of my life. This is Sunday number 53 in 2017. Sunday number 53. Now, in in case this gets by you, there are only 52 weeks in a year, right? So you take 52 weeks, you multiply that times seven days in a week, and you come up with 364 days. But there's 365 in a normal year and 366 in a leap year, so that gives you two little additional days to throw you off target. And you wouldn't think about this thing unless you track data and that's what we do. We track the attendance data and other data from the church. It helps you know if you're healthy or not, what's going on. And, and when I tracked the data, and it, it said week 53. And I said, that's not possible. There are not 53 weeks in a year. There are only 52. And so I had to argue with the data. Now, I've got the data in front of me. It's there, and it's concrete, and it's verifiable. And I'm still arguing with it, saying that, This cannot be right. So I went to the internet, which never lies to anybody, and I pulled up and found out that sure is shooting. You know, you got those two extra days, and I should have figured that out. You know, I've got a master's degree. I'm educated. And and still, it sort of threw me. But you know, it's it's human nature. It's human nature to, to take the facts that are laying in front of you and want to push those facts away because you view reality a different way. And it's just human nature to, to push that off to the side and say, yeah, but it's got to be this way. When we left John last time, Jesus had told everybody that he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. He's done a ton of things that could not be explained normally. He's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on the water. He's turned water into wine. He's healed sick people all over the place. But when he says he's the bread of life that came down from heaven, the people balked. Now, he's done all this stuff. Here it is. It's in front of you. The data is there. And then he says, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And the people said, no way. There's there's just no way. In verse 42, 
They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Well, I don't know. Maybe he walked on water. That could have been a clue. Maybe he fed 5,000 people. That, that might have been a clue. Maybe he healed people. And you got to see, maybe he healed you. So maybe that could have been a clue too. We tend to be pretty hard on these people, but we have to cut them a little bit of slack because it's human nature. We tend to hold on to our reality even if evidence points in another direction. And you know it's true. We tend to hold on to our reality even if evidence points in another direction. And then Jesus says, verse 54, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's just weird. Now, I know in church we're supposed to gloss over this stuff and make it all pretty and, and tie bows around it. And make, that's just weird. It's, just, it's, it's borderline sick. It is an offensive statement, and it offended some of his followers. It offended a lot of his followers. Verse 66 says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. I understand that. That's just strange. It's weird. Makes you wonder if they miss something. And that's what I want to look at. Why would Jesus say this? Now, the thing that bothers me about this, this whole text is I read through it again this morning before, you know, I'm getting ready for this and I'm reading through everything and getting ready. And I realized there are so many things in this scripture that we could talk about that we're just going to completely ignore because I want to deal with this one thing. Why would Jesus say this? Why, why would he say something that is so patently offensive to people that it ran people off? People left the church. If it had been a Baptist church, there had been a vote the next week to kick Jesus out because he's running people off. People, he split the church by what he said. Stopped it cold. Why would he do that? Why would he say these things? What are we what were they missing? Now, to understand that, you've got to go back 1,450 years from the day that Jesus was born. I'm going to read you about 12, 13 verses from the book of Exodus. I want you to listen to this, and then, and then off we go. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Now, guys, i just not going to give a whole lot of commentary as we go through, but the things that just sort of nailed me, what if God came in July to us on the 1st of July and said, this is going to be the first day of your calendar? He just interrupted everything. It didn't matter, what, it didn't matter if it was New Year's Day. He came up to them and said, today starts a brand new day. Today starts a brand new life. Today starts a brand new year. Don't care what anybody says. Don't care what your calendar looks like. Today is the first day of your new year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must select an animal of the flock according to their father's family, one animal per family. Okay, today's the first day. You've got 10 days to let everybody in this. There were a million people. You got 10 days 
to let make sure that this million people know what they need to do. They need to select an animal of the flock according to the father's family, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the fourth day, 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house where they eat them. They're to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over a fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over a fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. He's very specific here. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here's what you got to wear, he says, when you eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Have sandals on your feet. Staff in your hand. Eat it in a hurry. It's the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against all of the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, I find the story of the Passover fascinating. That's where the connection is here. It was planned. It was thought out. It was not a last-minute thing. God gave instructions to Moses and Aaron well in advance. Guys, this is what has to be done. Now, I want you to think about what we read. Families had to pick out a lamb that was just the right size that it could be completely eaten by their family. And if the family was too small, you know, there's, there's four of you and you're all picky eaters and you don't eat very much, then you've got to go to your next door neighbor and sit down with them and y'all have to plan a, 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 a goat or a sheep that's just the right size that the two families can eat everything and leave nothing but bones. Can't go to your friends, can't go down the street, can't go to the people you met at church, can't go to the people that you met at school, can't go to the people you met at the ball field. You've got to go to your next door neighbor and do this. And then you have to keep that sheep or that goat in your house for four days. Now, during these four days, you're to keep an eye out to make sure it had no blemishes. But you know what else I think? And I have no scripture to base this on. This is Randy's, this is Randy's opinion, which means you can throw it out. If you don't like it, don't matter, toss it in the trash. But here's kind of what I think may be going on. They had to keep this animal in the house for four days. How long does it take you to get attached to Fluffy? How long? You bring that little booger in the house, and the first time it rubs up against your leg, you're hooked. You know you are. We've got a cat. I hate cats. I've always hated cats. 
my experience with a cat when I was growing up is that it slunk around my legs, you know, and weaved in and out and did all the little cat things. And when I didn't pay it attention, it jumped up and bit my finger. I have never liked cats from that day. And yet we have a cat. And the cat comes in and he sits down beside you. And when you go to eat, he sits down beside you and he looks up like, well, I see you got a plate. Where's mine? And you end up feeding him. It took about that long to get attached to that cat. And I believe, and this isn't in scripture, so you can throw it away if you want to, but they had to keep these animals in their home compound, separated out for four days to watch it. And for four days, the kids petted on that animal. And for four days, mom and dad had to make sure it was fed and that it was watered, had to be without blemish. They probably took a brush, whatever they had, and brushed its hair out because it had to be the perfect animal for this. They took care of this animal, and you know that in four days it got attached. Some kid named it Fluffy. You know they did because that's what we do. And on the fourth day at midnight or at twilight, Dad and all the family got together and dad took a knife and he slit Fluffy, Fluffy's throat. And while Fluffy bled out, screaming, he's catching the blood in a cup. How did they feel to realize that something that was precious and had no blemish, no anything, our cute little animal had to die in order for us to live. I think there had to be an emotional attachment there to see that something had to die in order for me to live. In Jesus' day, when they slit the throat of the Passover lamb, they caught it in a cup that was round. It didn't have a bottom on it. And there was a reason for that. The idea is, this, is that blood is very precious. And if it was in a cup that had a bottom in it and you got distracted, you might set that cup down over here and then go do what you got distracted with and forget about that cup. And then when you go back to the cup, you'd found out that the blood was ruined, that it had set too long, it, all the things that blood does, and then you'd have to pour it out. And they said no, because Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood they wanted to make sure that you did not waste a drop of that. It was life, and it had to be poured on the altar for forgiveness of sins. And we know that practically. We know that life is in the blood because if you lose too much blood, you die. Now, a few weeks back, I went down to Hart's. I've always thought this was interesting, and of course, I've made the joke, and I'm sure a million people have made the same joke. I went down to Hearts to give blood. We have our blood drives in gray. You'll see the signs pop up, and you go down to Hearts for it. Hearts, for those of you who may not have a clue, which there could be maybe one person in here, is a mortuary. So I'm y'all don't see this? I'm going to a mortuary to let them have my blood so that I guess if I die, they can just wheel me into the next room and it's easier? Is that what the deal is here? But I go to Hearts, and you go and you just normally give a, a 
quart, a quart, a pint of blood. Normally give a pint of blood, but this time they asked me, did I want to use the double stack machine? Now, I don't know, that's not the real name, and that's not what they called it, but that's the name I've given to it. That what they do with this machine is they take your blood out and they separate the red blood cells and that they pump the other stuff back into your arm again. And I said, well, sure, whatever y'all need, I'll do it. It's no big deal. Let's do this thing. And they told me that the reason that they do this is because it gets twice as much, three, four, five times as many red blood cells in this bag. And you get somebody that needs red blood cells really, really bad, you give them this blood. And that makes them well quicker because a body without blood isn't alive. It's a dead body. Blood is life. And at this first Passover, dad sliced Fluffy's neck. Someone caught the blood. And then they took some of Fluffy's blood and they wiped it on the doorpost. And the lentil, and I looked that up to find out what a lentil was, and lentil is the bar that goes across the top of the door. So they put blood on the top, blood down both sides of the door. And that's when the death angel came that night and passed over anybody that had that. Now the lamb at that point had to be kept in your house four days, killed, roasted, eaten, and blood smeared on the house. And that's how God chose to deliver the Hebrew children from their bondage in Egypt. You see, they weren't free in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And they would forever, here's a big point, they would forever be in slavery in Egypt unless God did something. If God had not done this and required this of them and taken them out of Egypt, the Israelites, the Hebrew children, would be slaves in Egypt today because they weren't going to do anything. They were living their life the same way that they lived their life every day. But on this day, God happened to them. And God happened to us. Do you remember way back in John 1 when John said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember that? All of this is tied in. I, I, know, it's, I know it's the last Sunday of the year, and this is the worst Sunday in the world to come to church. It's the worst Sunday in the world to preach. It's just that in-between, you know. You've had the excitement of the Christmas, and you're tired, and tomorrow's New Year's, and all that's coming, and that's all exciting. And this week, and in between, sort of a lull. Everybody, if you read all the preacher tweets, you see all that. But as I'm reading this stuff and starting to realize the connection of the Old Testament and the New Testament and how these two fit in here together, and if you don't know the old, then you really miss an awful lot from the new. And that's what's, that's what's going on right here is that God in the Old Testament Provide, told them to get a lamb, and this is how I'm going to deliver you. And in the New Testament, we have John. Some of the first words we hear about Jesus is, Here is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Here is your final Passover lamb. You've been doing this for 1,450 years. And here is your last one. This one's the one that's going to totally deliver you. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father wants to free us from bondage. He doesn't want sin to be the death of us anymore. 
He picked out his own lamb, totally without blemish, chosen for the final Passover to free us from bondage, to take away our sin, but he still has to cause us to see it. And this is a hard thought, but he still has to cause us to see it. We are so blinded by sin before we are Christians. We are so blinded by sin that we don't know which way is up. We experiment with all kinds of things to make us feel like we're right, to make us feel like we're complete, to make us feel like we're whole, to make us feel like we're successful, to make us feel like we've got it together. And every time we find that thing, it lets us down and we have to look for some more. I've said to you guys over and over again the different things in my life that I thought that when I did this thing, whoo, it's going to be great. And I did that thing and that moment, I'm like, really? That's all there is to it? This is it? No big feeling? No completion? This is the way this operates. It's, there's a part of us Listen to me, there's a part of us in our spirit that is always on and it wants to have communion with God. But when sin came into the world, it got broken, it died, and it can't reach God anymore, but it knows it's supposed to be reaching something. And I, it's this thing, this thing is always on, and this thing is always looking for a signal always looking for a signal. And if it's hooked up for Wi-Fi, it's always pinging to find a Wi-Fi network that it can attach itself to somewhere. It's always looking. And if it finds a Wi-Fi network that's open and it's set up, it'll attach to it, just get it. And that's the way our spirit operates as it is constantly looking for something that it can attach itself to that will be the right thing, that will make me whole, that will make me right, that will establish the connection. And we know this. We know, every one of us, that there is something out there that we're looking for. If, you, if, if, if we didn't, I think we'd live a whole lot more simply than what we live. I think that there would be a lot less trouble in our lives than there is because we're always looking for that next little thing to make us happy to make us whole to make us complete every one of us experiences that we connect to most anything we can to make us feel like everything's okay and then it's not okay and we start pinging all over again and what we're pinging for is the father but we don't know that's what we're pinging for because we're dead to him. And we haven't the foggiest notion that it's him that we need. And unless he shows, unless he shows us the way to him, unless he shows us Jesus, we remain dead to him. There's Old Testament stuff 
all over the place here. In verse 45, Jesus says, it is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And their verses like that scattered everywhere. The Father will speak to our spirit. He makes the connection with us. He will be our teacher. He will lead us to truth. And Jesus is the truth. Jesus' words here are usually are unusual, especially if you don't know the context. But the context here is huge. God is making a way. Last week we read this scripture. She will give birth to a son and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will change us and make us complete. Jesus' words here sounded really, really weird, and they caused people to grumble. Verse 52, at that the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give his flesh to eat? And verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They forgot the exodus. They forgot what they'd been taught. They'd gone to Sunday school for a thousand years. They had all of the knowledge in all the world, and yet they sit down when they're confronted with something that's different from the reality, they threw out that something, even though they had data that said that something is what they needed. They l took literally what Jesus meant allegorically. They held on to their reality, even when the evidence pointed in another direction. Just as the Hebrew children had to eat the Passover lamb and paint their doors with blood, so too must those who will be saved fully embrace Jesus as their sacrifice. We consume him. We consume him so that we will be saved. As all of these folks were leaving, Jesus turned to the 12 disciples that were left and he said to them, you boys want to go away too? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom do we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And they understood that Jesus was the bread of life. Listen, there are a million things to divide us. Turn on the news and watch. I feel like every time I stand in the pulpit in the environment that we live in now, there's a minefield out there that you don't want to say the wrong thing because you can offend people by it. Women choir members, I praise the men. And you worry that somebody goes home and he says, well, he never praises the women. And that's just minor. Think about all of the things now that people are offended by. There are a million things to divide us. Anytime Jesus shows up, there will be division. Every time Jesus shows up, there will be division. If you don't believe me, go read what he says in the New Testament. That's not my opinion. That's the word. But the amazing thing is, is the very thing that divides is also the very one who, who unites. When we keep our eyes on him, when we consume 
him, when we are consumed by him, keep our eyes on him, when we read his word, when we pray, and then we quit talking and listen to him. If you're going to make New Year's resolutions this year, make that a resolution, okay? Not just to pray your laundry list and say amen and move on, but to pray and then hush and sit silently and be still and see what he calls to your mind and what he places in your heart. Listen for his voice. He calls us to come together and worship him. He calls us to come together and study him. That's why we need to be in Sunday school. Why to come to small groups. And this last part that we kind of do but don't really do is that when we get together, we need to share how he has worked in our lives. And I don't mean make-believe stuff. We stretch that real hard. I mean when we see God's hand in our life that we lean back and we say, this is what the Lord has done for me. And we share that with one another and bear one another's burdens and build each other up because that's what he's called us to do. He unites us. And it's only Jesus that does that. A million things cry out to us. But there is only one who saves and changes us. And that is Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's who we have to hang on to and who is going to be the focus of our lives in 2018. We're going to find Jesus, and then we're going to give Jesus away. And that's our goal. Would you pray with me? Father, sometimes when we, when we preach or teach, we feel like we're saying the same things that we've said. But Lord, I also know that today could be the day that it lands in somebody's heart. I know that I've read the scriptures over and over in, in my life. But a few years ago, you set me down in a room in Pigeon Forge, North Carolina, and I read those words and heard them like I had never read them before because it was your time for me to hear. And Lord, I pray that it would be our time to hear. I pray, Father, that you would help us see that the world we live in is not the world many of us were raised in, Lord, people don't care for Christians anymore. They don't feel like they've got to be a Christian in order to be a good person anymore. In fact, many people believe now that you're a better person if you were not a Christian. And Lord, for so long we've stood against so many things and we forgot that you came for people to save us and to make us like you. Help us, Father, we pray. Mend our hearts. Lord, there's hurt and pain all over the place. 
mend our hearts. Not just apply the salve, Lord, but bring the healing. And help us, Lord, as a body called by your name to bring salvation to all those that you have called. We love you, Father. And we want to worship you more. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, to come forward and talk to me about it. And for everybody else, pray. Take a few moments and pray before you go. Pray that in this coming year, we will hear his voice like never before. That we'll live his life like never before. That we'll be brothers and sisters like never before in this coming year. Won't you stand?